This past week, Barbara Bush passed away at 92 years old. And when you think about what a person who lives to 92 sees over the course of a lifetime, particularly over the 20th and 21st centuries, and the changes that take place in that lifetime, they are totally and utterly remarkable. In her lifetime, though she was young, she lived and witnessed both the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. She saw the troops come home victorious from World War II, and she saw the wall fall down in Berlin. Over the course of her life, the men walking on the moon and things orbiting in space went from being the stuff of science fiction novels to inspirational speeches to reality to even normal. She went in her life to it being fairly normal and ordinary for families like my grandparents to have dirt floors and no indoor plumbing to it being so standard to have phones and internet devices that go in your pocket that you can literally live stream any activity that you do from flossing your teeth to eating your dinner internationally that children have them. And my two-year-old can operate an iPad. As she witnessed changes over the course of her life. And there's no doubt that Times are changing. And times aren't just changing technologically. We are in the midst and have been in the midst of both moral and social revolution. You look and uh, read any newspaper article that you want to read or you download any newspaper article that you want to read and you read about the transgender discussion you read about the question of what is a marriage? And is marriage important? And should a couple even get married in today's age? And this isn't just outside the church. These are questions that are now being asked within the church. And these are questions that are now real genuine Christians, even evangelical Christians are beginning to wrestle with and ask. One a study that I read this week said that now there are 50% or almost 50% of professing Christians today believe that it is normal, acceptable, perhaps even good for a Christian couple to cohabitate prior to marriage. Another uh, survey said that uh, 30% of professing Christians believe that it is morally acceptable to be in a homosexual relationship. Brothers and sisters, we are in the midst of a moral revolution. And in the midst of this moral, ethical, and social revolution, the question that is coming to the forefront and the question that is being asked of us is whether or not the Bible is relevant. Whether or not this story, whether or not this book that has been passed down to us for 3,500 years in the Old Testament, some of it, 2,000 years of the New Testament canons, whether or not it is still a, 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 
a Bible that is relevant to the moral revolution and the social revolution and the times that are changing for us today. And we can't just go into our hole, go into our Christian bubbles, cover our eyes and pretend like that's not an important question. That's a big question. And we have to have a big answer for that big question. And when your children and your grandchildren and perhaps even you have that question, you need to be ready for it. And so brothers and sisters, I want us to look at that question this morning. Just like we have said every week, this won't be a totally intellectually satisfying answer, but there is a totally intellectually satisfying answer, I believe, to this question. And we can continue this dialogue, continue this discussion. And I would invite anyone that would like to talk more, let's go to coffee, let's go have lunch. And I would be, I'd be more than honored to, to continue this as a friendship and in a, in a conversation. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we began to, as I, as I began to look forward to when we were going to be ordaining two men into the gospel ministry, two men as lay elders into our church, and I began to look onto our church calendar, and I saw that this was a subject that we were going to be preaching on, I thought there was no better time for us to ordain two men into the ministry, two men into the lay elder ministry, than on the, when we were going to be preaching and talking about the subject of the relevancy of the Bible in the midst of a moral revolution. Because I believe these are men that will have to stand as crusaders, as warriors on the issue of the Bible's relevancy on the front lines for Iron City Baptist Church, and for the gospel. And Tony and Alan, I want you to hear me say that. That is your responsibility. As the wolves come in, you are defenders of the truth. You are warriors for the gospel. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Once you get there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 8 together. God's word says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from, the listening, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. As we look at the issue of whether or not the Bible is relevant 
even in the 21st century, and whether or not the Bible is going to remain relevant over my ministry and over the course of Tony's ministry and Alan's ministry, I want us to look to our text this morning, and I want us to find three reasons as to why I believe that the Bible is relevant and that the Bible's question of relevancy is never really a question at all. That as we read and we hear from Paul, that Paul gives us three logical reasons, three reasons that are rationally sound, plausibly sound, as to why the Bible is relevant, was relevant then, the Bible is relevant now, and the Bible will always be relevant. The first reason that I would give you is that people haven't changed. People haven't changed. Now, when Paul is writing, these are, for everything that we know, this is Paul's final words, at least Paul's final written words over the course of his life. Paul is probably days from his execution. He is going to be beheaded at the order of Nero. And so he is coming and he is writing his final words to his young son in the ministry, his young protege in the ministry, Timothy. And so as Paul is kind of preparing, what am I going to leave my son in the ministry with? What, is, what am I going to ultimately give? He is writing from a place of personal suffering, and he is writing to a man who is in the process of suffering, who is enduring suffering. In fact, just a few verses in the same chapter of chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Paul knows this personally, and Paul understands and realizes that Timothy has known this, is knowing this, and will know this. And what Paul is making very evident in the life of Timothy, Timothy is a local church pastor. Timothy is pastoring a church. He is an elder in a church, the church at Ephesus. If you've ever read the letter called the book of Ephesians, that is written to the church at Ephesus. Timothy's the pastor there. And so he's encountering suffering and the majority of the persecution, the majority of the suffering that Timothy encounters, he encounters not outside of the church, not from some force that comes from the community, not from the society. The majority of the suffering that Timothy encounters comes from within the church. It is suffering that he suffers at the hands of the church. Paul makes this evident by what he says. Listen to what he says. Read chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Now, who is it that is receiving sound teaching? It's the church, right? It's not people outside of the church. Those are not the people that are exposed to the sound teaching of Timothy. Those are not the people that are are listening to Timothy's teaching ministry. It's people within the church. So he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So here's what he says. There's going to be people from within the church, Timothy, that are going to prefer their passions to God's power. There are going to be people from within the church that prefer their passions to God's power. What he means by what I mean by God's power is God's word. What Paul, the way Paul understands God's word is Paul understands God's word to be filled with God's 
power. We see this here because he says that God's word is breathed out by God. All of God's word, God's word is breathed out by God. We're gonna unpack that a little bit more in a minute. In Romans chapter one, verse 16, he says, for, uh, the for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save all who hears it, right? It is the power of God. It is the dynamite of God. That is the word we get the word dynamite from. And he knows this personally. Timothy has experienced this personally in his life, that the word of God is filled with the power of God. But what Tim, Paul is telling Timothy is that there are going to be people that don't prefer the power of God. Instead, they prefer their own passion. Give me what I want. Fulfill my appetites and give me what I'm looking for. In fact, what he's really saying is that they're go their ears are go going to begin to itch. Their appetites are going to begin to long for something outside of the gospel. Their appetites are going to become, begin to get hungry for something more than the simple teaching of God's word. Something more than just sound preaching. They're going to want, they're going to want something with a little more flair to it. They're going to want something that's going to get into the myths. Something that's going to satisfy their curiosities. As a matter of fact, the Holman Christian Standard, when it says there, they're, they have itching ears. The Holman Christian Standard, it, it interprets that. Some of you may have that translation. And it interprets it as their ears itch for something new. <coughs> Please forgive me. A voice is struggling. The, the Holman Christian Standard there, it interprets it there as, as being, their ears itch for something new. In other words, you know what it's, what it's saying? What Paul is telling Timothy is that they're from within the church, there are going to be people who say this, give us a message that is more relevant to our lives. Give us a message that, has a, that, that is more applicable to me. Tell me better how I can achieve my ambitions. Tell me better how I can reach my financial goals. Tell me better how I can reach my family goals. Tell me better how I can reach my career goals and all of my life goals. Stop telling me about holiness. Stop telling me about Bible study. Stop calling me to prayer. Stop pestering me about fruitfulness. Stop pestering me about missions and evangelism. Stop calling me to godliness. Stop asking me and pestering me about gospel. Stop telling me about sinfulness. Stop confronting me with those issues. Start, start telling me about things that I perceive as being more relevant. Let me put aside the things that are God's power. Let me pick up the things that are my passion. So from within the church, Timothy, there are going to be people that are going to say, I want what is my passion not what is God's power. And brothers and sisters, I bet that if you look around the church community today, you will see entire churches that are built on men's passions and not on God's power. And he says, here's what's going to happen, Timothy. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to break your heart. But these men, these people from within the church, they're going to begin looking at you. 
They're going to say, give us less, fewer crosses, give us more jokes, give us more humor, give, give us less doctrine, give us more stories, give, give, us, give us less prophecy, give us more illustrations. Don't, don't, don't pound on the pulpit and spill water all over yourself, right? Help us reach our goals. And every week, Timothy, you're going to go into your study. You're going to go into your prayer closet. And you're going to pray for your people, Timothy. And you're going to weep for your people. And you're going to see their faces. I heard John tell the youth this on, Sunday, on Wednesday night. You're going to see their faces. And tears are going to well up in your eyes. And you're going to plead with God for them. And you're going to go and you're going to meet with God. And you're going to open up your Bible. You're going to open up, man, these, these ancient texts inspired, filled with the breath of God and the power of God. And you're going to beg, God, give me a word for your people. Not what I have to say, but let me stand before your people and say, thus saith the Lord. And you're going to labor. And you're going to labor. And you're going to labor. And you're going to stand in front of them and you're going to do, and, and as, with as much love and as much passion as you have, Timothy, you're going to give them the word. You're going to give them the word. And Timothy, some of them are going to look back at you and they're going to say, Timothy, I want something new. You know what they're going to do, Timothy? They're going to hire a new preacher. They're going to hire a new preacher. They're going to accumulate for themselves preachers that will work for them and not for God. They're going to hire for themselves preachers that will satisfy their passions and not God's power. They're going to hire themselves preachers that will preach to them their message and not God's message. They're going to hire for themselves Preachers that will satisfy their curiosities and not confront them in their sinfulness. They're going to hire for themselves preachers that will not call them to holiness, but to cheap happiness. They're going to hire for themselves preachers that will not give them genuine joyfulness, but a cheap substitute. They're going to hire for themselves preachers, Timothy, that will invite God's condemnation, not their salvation. That from within the church, their itching ears will no longer allow them to endure sound doctrine and sound teaching. They will long for something more relevant. And brothers and sisters, I call on you that if you find that inclination in your heart, and if we're honest, all of us at some point or another in our flesh and in the weakness of our flesh have been there before. All of us have been there before when we think, give me something new. But when we find that, we should be quick to rebuke it because at that place, we are weak and susceptible to false teachers. Weak and susceptible to false teachers. But what I want you to see and what I want you to think about 
is brothers and sisters, does that not sound a lot like the church today? Does it not sound like Paul is writing about the 21st century church? Does it not sound like Paul is writing to a young pastor in the 21st century church? Could Paul not have written this to Cody, my son in the faith? You see, people haven't changed very much, have they? People haven't changed very much. These are old questions. These are old temptations. These are old sins. And I remind you, brothers and sisters, we haven't even gotten outside of the sins within the church yet. We haven't even gotten outside of the sins within the church yet. And so when we hear and we see things like the, like the transgender issue in our day, and we, we face the, the, the question about homosexual marriage or the issue of marriage and divorce altogether, when we, when we see the, the moral revolution that, that's coming about around us, what we should understand is that these are not new sins and these are not new questions and these are not new temptations. These are old questions and old temptations and old sins repackaged and repurposed and represented for a new generation that the root causes and the root issues are the same as they have always been. People have not changed. Sinners have not changed. Humanity has not changed. Our packaging has changed. Our public relations has changed. Our marketing has changed. But people have not changed. The fundamental issue of mankind is that we have an identity crisis, that we do not understand who we are as image bearers of Almighty God, and we do not understand who we have been made to be in relationship to Him. And can I remind you something? That is the whole storyline of the Bible. That is the entire storyline of the Bible. It is to say how that which was made in the image of God for relationship with God was distorted and was fallen out of relationship with God can now be restored into relationship with God. It was given into a place of brokenness and uncertainty. And it is perfectly relevant today. The Bible is not irrelevant in our day of uncertainty. If anything, in this day of utter darkness and uncertainty, it is perhaps the most relevant it has ever been. What our world is looking for is answers. What our world is looking for is light. What our world is looking for is something to hold on to, an anchor, a rock, something to build upon. That is what the Bible is. The Bible cuts through the noise. The Bible cuts through the darkness. The Bible gives an anchor in the midst of this mess, in the midst of this uncertainty, and it gets to the root of the problem. A couple years ago when I was so sick, I went and I went to, I was crying out. I had all of these pains, right? So I was just like, just writhing. And all these, and I, and so, you know, like you, it was admittedly probably pretty hard to discern all the things that I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out at you, right? Um, some of you that were like John, he was there kind of at rock bottom moment. And so I'm like, I got this going on. I got this going on. I got this going on, you know? And, uh, 
you know, maybe not quite that hysterical. I probably should have been more hysterical, but I'm like, I got, you know, I got all this stuff going on, you know, and I, like internally, I'm like combusting, you know, and, uh, and so I go to one doctor and I was, and, and, and he zeroed in on a single symptom that I had. He zeroed in on a single symptom that I had and I was misdiagnosed. And I almost died as a result of that. But you know, I went to another doctor and he took all of the symptoms as a whole, and this is what he said. He said, all of the symptoms as a whole mean that there's something, there's something, there's something that we're not seeing. There's something that we're not seeing. That all of these symptoms come together, and, and all of these symptoms mean there's something beneath the surface that we're not seeing. So I'm going to send you back for a scan. I'm going to send you back for a scan and I just want to I just want to see what's going on but what what I can't really see because when I look at you you don't look sick but you got lots of craziness happening so I want to see beneath the surface and just see what's going on. And of course when he looked beneath the surface he was able to see that the issue wasn't that I had a cough and the issue wasn't that I had a fever and the issue wasn't that I had stomach pain the issue was the issue was that I had ruptured inside. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is like an MRI. The issue is not transgenderism. And the issue is not homosexuality. And the issue is not a, a, a loss of identity of marriage. The issue is that we have lost our identity as the image bearers of Almighty God. And we have lost who God is. The issue is, is that we have to lay the scriptures over the man. And the Bible shows beneath the surface that gets to the root cause. And brothers and sisters, that is never irrelevant. What we need in the church is we need men and women, mamas and daddies, grandmamas and granddaddies, Teenagers in our high schools who are surgeons with their Bibles. Surgeons with our Bibles. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to slice through any culture, through any generation, through any day, through any issue. It is not the symptom that it addresses. It is the source of the issue. It is the root cause. It is the regeneration and redemption of the heart. And if you get that right, all of the other symptoms are addressed, my friends. You'd say, but I don't know the Bible well. That's okay. Start today. Start today. Open it today. Go to Matthew chapter 1 and start reading there. Go to Matthew chapter 1 and start reading there. We have so many Bible reading plans, so many Bible reading. We can hook you up, man. Start reading today. Become a surgeon with your Bible. Al and Tony, what our church needs is we need you to lead us in being surgeons with your Bibles. Because you, the Bible is perfectly relevant, even more relevant in a day of uncertainty. Reason number two the Bible is relevant is that God, hasn't, God doesn't change. People haven't changed, and God doesn't change. People haven't changed, and God doesn't change. So I want you to notice that the way that, that Paul roots the scriptures in Timothy's mind is he roots it in the authority and character of God. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. 
So in Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says that the breath of God is hovering over the deep. And the implication there is that God speaks and through the breath of God, the power of God actuates and all that is comes into being. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we have the valley of dry bones. God speaks and there is a skeleton and the breath of God comes and, inhib- and, and inhabits that skeleton and it comes to life by the very word of God. Timothy didn't just know this historically. He didn't just know this philosophically. If you just go two verses prior to verse 16 and verses 14 and 15, you know what Paul brings to his remembrance? This is what came to know, he came to know very personally in his own life, that the gospel that saves, the gospel that is God's dynamite came into Timothy's life and that scripture came into his life and it saved Timothy. It redeemed Timothy. Timothy's not just a preacher because he wants to preach. Timothy is a preacher because he has been saved by Almighty God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy knows this personally. He knows this powerfully. And Paul is reminding him, this is not Paul's words. These are not Timothy's words. These are God's words. This is the greatest news that Timothy could have ever heard. When the people want, don't want God's power, they want his pat, their own passions, remind yourself, this is his word, not yours. This is his word, not yours. You see, as we come into our minds and we question the relevance of the Bible, what we really have to question is the relevance of God himself. What we really have to question is the relevance of God himself. See, when, when Paul says that all of scripture is God-breathed, What he is saying, not only is scripture filled with God's power, but scripture is filled with God's character. That God breathed out his character into scripture. That God's integrity is on the line. That God's God's own name is on the line when it comes to scripture. That he, I want you to think about this question. Why would the eternal God give us a temporarily helpful book? Why would the eternal God give us a temporarily helpful book? It's senseless. It's senseless. Well, God loves his people. And God knew time before time existed. God is the author of time. God in his sovereign power. God in his sovereign wisdom. He wrote out time before time would be. God wrote the history books before the history books were history books. God wrote out your life before your life would be your life. Before the foundation of the earth, he knew his church. Certainly, he knew what would happen in the 21st century before the 21st century would be. The transgender crisis hasn't caught God off guard. Homosexual marriage hasn't caught God off guard. The things facing Gracie Kate and Sarah Eliza with social media and the information uh, revolution, none of that has caught God off guard. So we would have to be willing to say that not only is the Bible irrelevant, but God himself is irrelevant. Brothers and sisters, he is not irrelevant. He is not outdated. He He is not out of time. He is, not, he is not some grandpa that time is passing by. He is the author of time. 
He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the one before whom every tongue, every tribe, and every nation will bow on bended knee. He is the one who fills His Word with power and honor and integrity. You can trust the relevance of His Word as much as you can trust the character of His Almighty name. But you know, there is a way. There is a way that his word is irrelevant. There is a way that his word is irrelevant. Notice what he says in verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, this is the effect of scripture. Do you understand that? So, so, so all scripture is breathed out by God. It has his power. It has his character, it has his name, all of those things. It, it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness to the end of every man, <clears throat> every man of God, every man or woman, that could be man or woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's what I mean by it can be irrelevant, irrelevant for you. If your aim in life, if your goal in life is to be a man or a woman of God, to walk with God, to know God, to love God, to raise a family of God, to, to, to experience joy in God, to be full of God, to bring glory to God, the word of God, always relevant to thrive in God in ways that this world has no concept of thriving, to raise children that thrive in God that this world has no concept of thriving. The word of God is relevant in ways that our minds, our puny, pathetic little minds can't even fathom. But the word of God, if you want to live a me-centered, self-centered, world-centered life, is totally irrelevant to you apart from repentance. Apart from calling you to repentance, the Bible is totally irrelevant to you. It has no framework for you. Because the effect of the Bible, the aim of the Bible, the goal of the Bible is so that you would be a man of God equipped for good works, equipped in righteousness. And so if the goal of your life is not to be equipped for good works, if the goal of your life is not to be equipped for righteousness, the Bible's irrelevant. If you come to the Bible and you ask, Lord, how can I live my best life now? The Bible is irrelevant to you. If you come to the Bible you say, God, how can I reach all of my financial goals now? The Bible is irrelevant for you. If you come to the Bible and you say, Lord, how can I feel better and justify my sexual sin? How can I feel better about the bitterness that I have in my heart? The Bible is irrelevant for you, apart from calling you to repentance. See, I wonder if a lot of the relevance questions that we have the Bible, a lot of the relevance issues that we have with the Bible are really motive issues. How often do we go to the Bible saying, God, here's what I need to see, here's what I want to see, rather than, God, what would you have for me to see? 
Can I ask you, how do you come to your Bible? How do you come to your Bible? Is it so that you can be a man of God equipped for good works in the kingdom of God? Or is it so that you can continue on in your me-centered, self-centered lifestyle being the most successful American that you can be? If that's the case, the Bible is irrelevant apart from calling you to repentance and a God-centered worldview. The Bible is relevant because people haven't changed, because God doesn't change, and finally because Christ's church endures. Notice what Paul says at the end. He says, as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In his final words to his protege, Paul simply says, preach the word. Preach the word. When it's easy and when it's not, preach the word. When your circumstances are good and when they're not, preach the word. Whether the church is growing or not, preach the word. Whether the people are listening or not, preach the word. Whether they keep coming back or not, preach the word. Whether they will endure sound teaching or not, preach the word. Whether you feel good or not, preach the word. Whether you want to wake up or not, preach the word. Whether you're young or old, preach the word. Whether you're under persecution or not, preach the word. Whether your ministry is going well in your mind or not, preach the word. And then laid in that charge is a, the mission of a temptation. A temptation that Paul had faced, that he understands Timothy is facing that I have faced, that Tony and Alan will face. You see, the flesh and the eyes conspire with one another to tempt us in our ministries. In subtle ways, even well-meaning ways, we often look out against to the congregation and we see and we, and we know when you glaze over and we know and we see when people check out or we see when the, when the chairs start to empty and we think, even in subtle ways, I've got to change. I've got to change what I'm saying a little bit. I've got to be a little bit funnier. I've got to be a little bit more current. I've got to have more stories in my sermons. I've got to modernize my message a bit more. I'm coming too, across too harsh. I'm too old-fashioned. I'm too old this. I'm too this. I'm not going to reach the modern generation anymore. I preach too much about this. I preach too little about this. I don't talk enough about this. I haven't gotten to this yet. I've got to change this. I've got to change that. And in subtle ways, we, we give up little ground here and a little ground there and a little ground here. And you look back and you think, how did I get here? How did I get here? Even well-meaning, gospel-loving preachers. So Paul is looking and he's saying, Timothy, Timothy, don't give in to those temptations. And he gives two ways. He says, first of all, remember, 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You're not accountable to me and you're not accountable to them. You're accountable to God and to Christ. This is Christ's church. You preach every single week, not as an offering to a congregation, but as an offering to God Almighty. As an act of worship, you are his preacher and you are his prophet. Preach the word, prophet. Secondly, Timothy, look around. I was tempted the same way, Timothy. But I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith, Timothy. They told me that the message would have to change. They told me that it would have to be more relevant. They told me it would have to be more current. But look around you, church. Look around you. The church still stands. The church still stands. The church will endure because Christ has already said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, not preachers, not men, not jokes, not relevant truth. I will build my church. Christ's church will endure because Christ's truth will endure and because Christ's truth will endure. The word of God will endure. It will always be relevant, church. You'll notice, you'll notice, he bookends chapter four by talking about that day. He draws Timothy's eyes up. I charge you in the eyes of the one that you will ultimately give account to, Christ Jesus, the judgment seat. And then he says, I'm fixing to go and see him in the judgment seat. He says in verse eight, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, not just to me, Timothy, but to you. There's already, it's in the present tense. There's already a crown there for you, Timothy. There's already one there. Can I tell you something, church? If you live for this day, the word of God is irrelevant for you. The word of God is irrelevant for you. Eat, drink, be merry. If you live for that day, if you live for the day and you love his appearing and you long for the moment in which you will be face to face in the judgment seat of Christ and that day will be joyful and not loathsome for you, oh, brothers and sisters, the word of God will stand firm and it will always and ever be relevant in your life, not just now, but for billions and billions and billions as you go back again to the Psalter for songs of praise at the, th at the throne of God Almighty to tell him how good and glorious he is. Let's pray together.